Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. What's your favorite diagram in Lacan's work from the 1960s? You know what mine is. It's that internal eight that he starts working out toward the end, really at the very end, of Seminar 11. It's also where we ended our series on Seminar 11, and yet it's a diagram that pops up again here in Seminar 16 in a very meaningful way, and that we have also resurrected a bit in hopes of supporting this meaning that Lacan is trying to draw out by returning to an internal eight. We don't need to go through the details of what we did at the end of Seminar 11 in our series on 11 with the internal eight. You can check it out there for yourself in our lecture series, but also on page 271 of the original English text. There's a passage, though, that I want to read to you. It's a passage that I'm sure you've heard before, but that strikes me as uniquely resonant with what's happening in chapter 22 of seminar 16. It's a couple pages after Lacan shows us this internal eight at the end of seminar 11. And what he says is that, it is beyond the function of the objet a that the curve closes back upon itself. So you'll recall in the internal eight structure, in the internal loop, you see identification in the nine o'clock position, and you see desire, objet A, in the position of three o'clock, with transference down at six o'clock. What Lacan is here doing with the little a is saying that it needs to be with the greatest possible distance from the eye of identification. We've talked about this. Whose job is this? In order to give you formula reference points, I will say, if the transference is that which separates demand from the drive, it is the analyst's desire that brings it back. And in this way, it isolates the object little a, places it at the greatest possible distance from the eye that he, the analyst, is called upon by the subject to embody. And this is an embodiment of the eye that the analyst, if doing their job properly, would resist. It is from this idealization that the analyst has to fall in order to be the support of the separating little a, insofar as his desire allows him, in an upside-down hypnosis, to embody the hypnotized patient. The analyst, in other words, needs to fall from this idealized position, a position that we know as the subject supposed to know, the subject whom the analyzand assumes has all the answers about what ails the analyzand, among other things. The goal of the analyst is to fall from this position. And this is precisely what Lacan is here queuing up at the end of Seminar 16 in Chapter 22 as well. The crossing of the plane of identification is possible, he goes on to say in Seminar 11. Anyone who has lived through the analytic experience with me to the end of the training analysis knows what I am saying is true. 
Part of the reason why I'm queuing up Seminar 11 here at the end of Seminar 16 is because in Chapter 22, Lacan has some interesting, terrific, I would suggest, things to say about the end of analysis. And that's also where he's ending Seminar 11. It is beyond the function of the little a that that the curve closes back upon itself. Here's the sentence that we just began. At a point where nothing is ever said as to the outcome of the analysis. That is, after after the mapping of the subject in relation to the little a, the experience of the fundamental fantasy becomes the drive. Great passage in Seminar 11, motivated a lot of our work at the end of that series and our subsequent mini-series on the drive, but we're reading it now with a turn towards what's happening in this series, here at the end of Seminar 16. What then does he who has passed through the experience of this opaque relation to the origin, to the drive, become? And here's that famous question that I'm sure you've heard before. How can a subject who has traversed the radical fantasy experience the drive? This is the beyond of analysis and has never been approached. Now that is usually where the quote stops. As you know from our series on 11, however, and as I want to remind y'all here, that's not where we stop. Reading on. Up to now, it has been approachable only at the level of the analyst, inasmuch as it would be required for him to have specifically traversed the cycle of the analytic experience in its totality. The cycle of the analytic experience at stake here is the cycle that you see in the internal eight diagram at the end of seminar 11. And then Lacan hits us with this claim that can't be ignored. There is only one kind of psychoanalysis, the training analysis, which means a psychoanalysis that has looped this loop to its end. The loop that is being looped here is the loop, an internal loop established in this diagram known as the internal eight. And here's the key part for us right now. The loop must be run through several times. There is, in effect, no other way of accounting for the term durcharbeitem which here means working through, of the necessity of elaboration except to conceive how the loop must be run through more than once. So the internal eight at the end of seminar 11, this diagram, needs movement to be added to it. A pathway that basically runs counterclockwise, as we've seen. And the loop the pathway, the looping circuit that is established is one that must be run through several times. The loop must be run through more than once. And that is precisely what I would suggest needs to happen if we're to understand what Lacan is doing with the internal eight at the end of seminar 16. It's a loop that has to be run through several times. And I would suggest at least three or four times. One of the things we're going to try and figure out here is what it would mean to run that loop more than once. The key points of which are outlined in chapter 22. One of the things that makes chapter 22 so terrific at the end of seminar 16 is that Lacan shifts the conversation 
from the barred subject and the barred other to the analyst. The analyst needs to fall from what? From the position of the subject supposed to know. And what is this position of the subject supposed to know? Well, it's the psychoanalytic version of the philosopher's god, which is the modern version of the Old Testament god. Lacan says as much here in chapter 22. But let's see if we can earn this insight exactly as we've been discussing it, namely with regard to this internal eight. The diagram without much labeling on it looks something like this. And it's a good diagram for us to have in front of us as we move through these materials. The first pass that we've discussed is one that would start here at the top, 12 o'clock, labeled in seminar, 20, seminar 16 as the unconscious, qua origin, qua lost origin, as a place of truth. The move would then be to pop out here, according to Lacan, and arrive at a desire to know, conditioned by this unconscious origin. A desire to know what? To know one's self. To know thyself. The problem is that this effort all too often yields an understanding of self-consciousness as I know that I'm thinking that is in fact false consciousness because there's always a place where I don't know that I'm thinking, a field of unknowing that is unknown to me, if you will. What results from self-consciousness turned false consciousness we've seen is a series of knowledges. It can be a specific discourse, a specific discipline. In short, an S2 of some kind is produced as a result of this false consciousness. I would suggest here that we read chapter 22 as suggesting that the analyst is often among the S2s that gets pushed out here into the nine o'clock position. And there's good support for this. The analyst is implicated as a subject supposed to know, the god of sorts to support the civilization that the neurotic brings out. Let's see how Lacan unfolds this in chapter 22, holding in mind the diagram that you've just seen and that we'll see again. There's a paragraph that begins on page 6 of our translation in chapter 22 that begins the God of Philosophers. However, he may have been throughout history attached to the train of the God that speaks. Now, in the paragraph leading up to this paragraph we're about to study, Lacan is talking about what happens around the ignorance of the Analysand and the free association that they stumble into at the beginning of analysis. Partly what happens is that the analyst gets lured in the position of a subject supposed to know as an omniscient counterpart to the utterly ignorant analyzand. The last line of the paragraph before is telling here, what is implicit is that whatever you may say, there is this big O other, this big O other who knows what it means. The big O other here in question, not a barred other, but the fantasy of a big O other who always knows what you mean when you speak is that of a subject supposed to know. 
It's that of an analyst who always knows what your utterances mean. And it's no coincidence in this paragraph as well that Lacan likens the analyzand in this moment to a keeper of the faith. And you know that whenever Lacan is working around faith and religion in Seminar 16, he's thinking pretty carefully about the way that God has been transmutated into all these other avatars of the big other that we fancy omniscient, omnipotent, omni, fill in the blank. The God of philosophers, Lacan suggests, is the God that follows the God of the Old Testament. The God of philosophers, however he may have been throughout history, attached to the train of the God that speaks, it's an important element early on in chapter 22, is certainly not foreign to him, of course. It is not illegitimate to make of this God of the philosophers the base, the throne, the support, the seat of the one who spoke. That the seat remains even when the other has risen to go, at least for some. The seat remains of this big O other. Of this big O other insofar as he situates this unifying, unified field that has a name for those who think. So here we are back at the discussion of what the big O other entails. Unification. A unified field. A universe in which all things hang together. That's the fantasy, is that there is a big other in which everything is included, contained, and hangs together in a unifying, unified field sort of way. So it's no coincidence that you then get a quick and nasty riff on sufficient reason. Lacan goes on to say, let us call it, if you wish, the principle of sufficient reason. So you've got the God of Judaism who speaks. You've got the God of the philosopher who thinks. And you've got the God of the psychoanalyst who interprets, who assigns meaning The logic here, Lacan says, in each case is one of sufficient reason. At the horizon of what renders psychoanalytic experience possible, namely, that if there is not a sufficient reason for whatever you may say in looking no further than to say what passes through your head, there will always be a sufficient reason for this. And that is enough to put on the horizon of this big other, the one who knows. So, in philosophical discourse, sufficient reason is the belief that there's an explanation for everything. In other words, that you can always, if you just think hard, cogently enough, answer the question, why? It assumes that the universe exists, that it is coherent, that its parts are interconnected, unified, and so on. Sufficient reason, you might even say, is the mindset that supports and props up the fundamental fantasy. Always yielding for us this belief that there is someone who knows. Next paragraph. The thing is, in any case, quite clear in the privileged 
subjects of this experience, namely the neurotics. The neurotic seeks to know. What the neurotic seeks to know, we've learned, is themselves. But notice how this unfolds. The neurotic seeks to know. We are going to see more closely why, but he seeks to know. And at the beginning of analytic experience, we have no trouble encouraging him, in short, to have faith, there's that word again, in this big O other as a locus where knowledge is established, in the subject supposed to know. The neurotic's desire to know themselves is what props up the fundamental fantasy that the analyst is an omniscient being, an avatar of the old world turned modern God. So in this first pass through the internal eight that we see from an unconscious origin that is true to a desire to know oneself, to self-consciousness as false consciousness, to the emergence of various knowledges, qua S2s, we're not just talking about the neurotic. We're also talking about how the analyst gets wrapped up in this. The analyzan shows up and plays their part, and all too often, the analyst is lured into theirs. And that's what Lacan is suggesting here. It's interesting. The turn is away from the bard subject and away from the bard other to the fantasy that the other exists. In this case, as a function, very realistically, a function of the neurotic's desire to know. <clears throat> Which brings us to the other important element in the internal eight that we've been working with in the past few lectures off and on. Namely, this thickened element here, which I referred to as an overpass. It's there to show us that knowledge creates a screen that allows us to identify where the unconscious is. The unconscious is the underpass, you've heard me say, for the overpass established by knowledge as it circles through the internal eight. Knowledge as an overpass is what allows us, in other words, to designate the space of the unconscious, to mark it out, and to mark it out for what it is, an underpass established by knowledge. Now, what would happen here if we were to actually start tracing this out? In our first round, we have things starting with the unconscious up top, moving down to the desire to know, then giving us self-consciousness, and finally ending in knowledge. And if we were going to write that out, it would look something like this, just to keep things as clear as possible. The unconscious origin, the desire to know, self-consciousness, and then the emergence of various knowledges that then provide the very screen where we can detect the unconscious. What we could do now is instead start moving things around a little bit. 
knowledge qua overpass is what allows us to reveal the unconscious for what it is. You heard me just say an underpass. And what we're doing that now then is effectively renumbering these things so that the knowledge that would create the overpass is exactly the same knowledge by which we can determine where the unconscious lies. And what that means is that we're effectively renumbering this. So the first time the loop is run through, we end with knowledge. Here what we're saying is that knowledge is precisely what provides the screen, the overpass, that allows us to designate where the unconscious is. So if we start our next round through this diagram here in the position of knowledge, we get a new approach in which the second moment in this diagram is that of the unconscious. Here, what is left out, what we see traced like a streak through the field of knowledge, which is not exactly the unconscious, but its remnant, its marker, its placeholder. Here, Lacan calls it object little a. It's what knowledge produces when it passes over the unconscious. And object A here is also what the subject brings with them from then on. So the knowledge in question here that brings us to the overpass that allows us to designate the unconscious, it carries forward with it a trace. And that trace is object A. There's some good evidence of this in chapter 22 that we should probably consider. If you look, for instance, early on in the chapter, just a few pages in, there's a paragraph that begins, it is not out of season to start from there. About midway through, he says, so that this structure, which is the one that I am aiming at to start again from today, the original structure, the one that I called that of an big O other, to show where, through the incidence of psychoanalysis, it is going to reveal a quite different other, namely the object little a. You now start to get a sense of why this seminar, seminar 16, is called from an other, a big O other, to the little o other. What Lacan is here suggesting is that the structure of the big other, which is all the big other is, it's just a structure, shows us that when psychoanalysis arrives on the scene, we now can trace through that structure the emergence of something quite different, namely object little a. This other, big O other, let there be no doubt about it within our horizon. This big O other, which is precisely the god of the philosophers, is not so easy to eliminate as people believe, since in reality it undoubtedly remains stable at the horizon in any case of all our thoughts. So the god that provided the horizon of religiosity, 
prior to the modern era, now slips into the god of the philosopher that provides the horizon for all of our thoughts in modernity. And it's this very same figure whose seat will eventually be occupied by the psychoanalyst as a subject supposed to know when, they're, when they go astray on their path of analytic experience. Lacan returns to this topic of an object little a that is produced out of the structure of the big other. It starts popping around page five. So then, what interests us, because this is what psychoanalysis revealed, is what is produced in knowledge. What is produced in knowledge, but was not suspected before psychoanalysis, is object little a, insofar as analysis articulates it for what it is, namely the cause of desire, of the division of the subject, of what introduces into the subject as such what the cogito masks, namely that alongside this to-be, that it thinks it can reassure itself with, it is essentially from the beginning lack. So psychoanalysis doesn't just track this trace or this streak through the structure of the big other and its various epistemological avatars, namely knowledges, discourses, disciplines, S2s. It also is able to identify this trace for what it is, this streak known as object little a for what it is, namely the cause of desire, of the division of the subject, of what introduces into the subject what the cogito, think self-consciousness, think I know I'm thinking, masks. Namely, that alongside this being that it thinks it can reassure itself with, it is essentially from the beginning lack. And that's why in the green arrow here, what you see is little a emerging and being drugged along as a new, along a new running of the same circuit. The fall of the analyst from the position of subject supposed to know would begin here. In this moment where object A is brought forth from the underpass of the unconscious and is now trailing the barred subject, if you want to think of it that way. Let's see if we can track down some passages that support this as the opportunity structure for the fall of the analyst that we've heard from Seminar 11 Forward as being so crucial to bringing analytic experience to a positive conclusion, which nevertheless would be the negation of the analyst as we're going to see. It's about midway through and in our translation, page 10. The fact is that it is certain that this subject's supposed to know, this big O other, this unique locus where knowledge is supposed to connect up, and wait for it, here it is, ready? Does not exist. The fact is that the big O other, the subject's supposed to know, this place where knowledge is supposed to link up, does not exist. Nothing indicates that this big O other is one, capital O, one. Think unus, unified, universalizable, so on. That it is not like 
the uniquely signifiable subject of the signifier of a particular topology that is summarized by what is involved in the little o object, as we have in this English translation, meaning for us, object little a. Read this very carefully. Nothing indicates that the big other is anything different from the barred subject. On the contrary, we see lots of evidence, in fact, that the barred subject and the barred other have a certain type of kinship, which is what we've been discussing. How can the psychoanalyst then, and this is where I accentuate the enigma and the paradox of the psychoanalytic act, the psychoanalyst insofar as he induces, as he incites the subject, the neurotic on this occasion, onto the path where he invites him to meet the subject supposed to know. How can the psychoanalyst if it is true that he knows what a psychoanalysis is, and Lacan doesn't want to assume that. In fact, he assumes that most psychoanalysts are fucking idiots and that they have no clue what a psychoanalysis entails and what it actually is. So when he says if it's true that he knows what a psychoanalysis is, that's a big assumption on his part. Usually what he does is indicate that most people, including those in his own audience, have no fucking clue what he's talking about and as a result stumble into the very traps that he tries to reveal for them, in this case the trap of becoming the subject supposed to know for a free associating analyzant. How can he proceed to this act? To this act, in other words, of falling from that position. Because he knows what is involved about what at the end of the operation and with his very in-self he, the analyst, is going to represent the evacuation of object little a. From this incitement to knowledge that ought to lead to the truth and that represents the gap in it, he falls by becoming himself the rejected fiction. This is partly what Lacan means when he says the analyst has to fall from the idealized position of the subject supposed to know. And he has to figure out a way to do this. The analyst has to represent the evacuation of object little a. From this incitement to knowledge that ought to lead to the truth and that represents the gap in it, he falls by becoming himself the rejected fiction. In other words, the analyst has to go from becoming capital A, the big O other that's whole, to capital A barred, a desirous, enigmatic avatar of the big other, if you will, to object little a. This worthless scrap, this fiction to be rejected, if you will. It's great what he's doing here with fiction, but for our purposes, we're moving pretty quickly to try and understand what the fall of the analyst looks like and the passages that support this. An interesting thing happens on page 11, where Lacan starts to spell out more of what he means by the end of analysis, which you heard us starting with talking about seminar 11. He wants to know what happens when analysis reaches its term, in other words, its end, inasmuch as it is the term that determines retroactively the sense of the whole process is properly its final cause. He's looking for the punctuation mark at the end of an analysis that allows for a retroactive assignment of meaning in terms of what that analysis 
would have entailed. Which does not deserve any derision because everything that belongs to the field of structure is unthinkable without a final cause. And then notice this term. The only thing that deserves derision in terms described as finalistic is that the end is of the slightest use. Isn't this great? The end of analysis marked by the fall of the analyst, among other things, should be some sort of a feeling that the end marks the analysis as not even of the slightest use. Its ultimate state being that of uselessness. Pretty interesting in light of what we've been hearing about in terms of means without ends, means as ends, purposiveness without a purpose in the field of autoeroticism. Here we're seeing it popping up again at the end of analysis. The great derision that should be proffered at this moment is only for analyses that try to hold on to relevance as being of the slightest use, Lacan is here suggesting. Does the analyst know or not what he is doing in the psychoanalytic act? This is the question that Lacan is ending with here in seminar 16. Do these motherfuckers know what they're even doing? And recall also what he's doing here with psychoanalytic act. If you haven't read 15, this is a great chapter to get a sense of what he was up to there. Um, Here he wants to talk about this as an act of sorts, as a playing of certain parts. Again, looking for this point at which the fall of the analyst begins, what this might look like at the end of analysis, we get some more clues on page 14 and right along the lines you just heard me talking about. The analyst as an actor who is effaced. Rejoining earlier what I said about him evacuating object little a. It's a really interesting link between passages that we've been reading. What would this look like? What exactly does this effaced actor show up as? Lacan wants to end a little bit enigmatically here. To keep quiet, to see nothing, to hear nothing. Who does not remember that these are the terms in which a wisdom that is not ours indicates the path to those who want the truth? And that's kind of what's at stake here. Finding from the circuits of knowledge that we've been working with a certain truth, a truth that at the end of analysis, the analyzand finds themselves incurable of. How does all of this play out in analysis? Is there not something strange on condition that one recognizes the sense of these commandments to see there an analogy in the position of the analyst, but with this singular fruit that gives it its context. And here we go. Because he is isolated from it by keeping quiet, the voice that is the kernel of what, by being said, creates speech. By seeing nothing, which is very often only too well observed by the analyst, isolating the look that is the not tightened on the sack of everything that is seen at least. And finally, to hear nothing of these two demands into which desire has slipped, of these two demands that summon him, these two demands that block him from the function of the breast or indeed of excrement. 
silent and thus speechless, without the very thing that distinguished the Old Testament God, namely speech, blind and also deaf. Speechless, blind, and deaf. This is the actor effaced as the analyst falls from the subject supposed to know. Lacan even wants to be more precise. And he goes on to call this person a scapegoat. We know that its origin is properly speaking Semitic. So here he is back to Semitic traditions, but now he's not looking at the status of the God who speaks. Now he's looking at the figure of the scapegoat. Notice that slide from divine omniscience and an all-too-readiness to talk to the silent, blind, deaf status of the analyst at the end of analytic experience. Qua scapegoat, not a god, but a scapegoat. The one who takes on himself this object, little a. The one who ensures that forever the subject can be reprieved from it. That's a, such an interesting way to figure this. The one that ensures that the fruit of a terminated analysis, I was able last year to designate as a truth of which the subject is henceforth incurable, precisely because one of the terms of it have been evacuated. The subject passes from a desire to know and all the different permutations that come from the working of that internal eight circuit to being delivered over to an incurable truth. A desire to know gives way to an incurable truth. As we start working the internal eight circuit here, from the unconscious to a desire to know, to self-conscious, to knowledge, which serves as the screen of the unconscious that allows the subject on passing through to pick up this object, ah, this trace, and carry it forward into new iterations of the same more or less structure here. New iterations of the same structure, the same logic, the same internal eight gets run through again, which is what we've heard. What we have here is an object little a that is what knowledge produces when it passes over the unconscious. An object little a that is what the subject brings with them from then on. That's what gets picked up at the 12 o'clock passage. And this object little a is to be realized as lack, as cause of desire, Lacan tells us in this chapter. But here's the question, a desire for what? On the first pass, this was a desire for knowledge, self-knowledge resulting in self-consciousness. On the second pass, what exactly is desire's role here? It's not a desire for self-knowledge. Instead, it's a desire for enjoyment. That's what we get on the second pass. The desire for knowledge now is a desire for enjoyment. What Lacan calls this, on page 13 of our translation, is a knot of enjoyment at the origin of all knowledge. 
a knot of enjoyment. The fall of the analyst into objea marks this position, signals this knot. And what we have here at the bottom, at the six o'clock, is not self-consciousness on the second pass, but instead autoeroticism, which has been a theme that we've been working through toward the end of this seminar. So the desire for knowledge gives way to a desire for enjoyment. And where we previously saw the emergence of self-consciousness as false consciousness, now we see autoeroticism, meaning exactly what it is that we've been discussing in this series. If we should keep going, it would be by starting here, in this autoerotic position. And we would accordingly renumber the stages just as we've been doing. Now we start from down here. And you can start to see how this thing plays out. The one slides to the one, slides to the one. The starting position is a quarter turn in each case. Let's start where self-consciousness has given way to autoeroticism, conditioned not by a desire to know, but instead a desire for enjoyment. What then is the knowledge that is conditioned by this? And maybe it'd be worth just noting here what we're dealing with. If you've got ears to hear how this has been unfolding, in the position at the top, it's always a position of truth. In the position of our nine o'clock, we see a position of desire, a desire to know, a desire to enjoy. At the bottom, we'll leave this enigmatic. It's a self-relation position. Out here, though, at our three o'clock is where we always have knowledge. And that's what we're working towards now. What type of knowledge is conditioned by the autoerotic displacement of self-consciousness? Let me be precise. It is knowledge of the sexual. In position two, here, in the field of knowledge, autoeroticism allows for knowledge of the sexual. Which then begs the question, what happens next? What happens in the field of truth? Well, if you've seen our series on Seminar 11, you won't be surprised to hear from me that this is the position of the drive, of a barred subject in relation to a capital D demand both of which fade and only leave us with an opening, a place, in short, that objet a, and not simply as an object. Recall what we've done in this series, redefining object little a in all of its tripartite glory. Object little a is a lost object.
as well as a found opening, as well as the irreducible minimum distance or space between these two elements. So the object little a that is discovered here in the position of truth on this latest pass, this third pass through the internal eight, is the object little a that we have defined in this series as that which puts us on the trialectics of the drive. Lost object, found opening, and irreducible distance or gap minimum between these two entities. What then is in our fourth position? Where does this thing end, this third pass? I would suggest that it ends in another type of desire. Not a desire for knowledge, but instead, and not a desire for enjoyment, but instead, it's a desire for an other barred subject. For someone who enjoys like me, but doesn't enjoy just like me. It's a desire for a differential equality with another person, another barred subject. So the desire to know gives way to the desire to enjoy. And the desire to enjoy gives way to a more classic desire, which is a desire for another person. But here what we desire is not a subject supposed to know, not a big other. There's nothing anaclytic about this business either. This is a desire for an other barred subject, someone who enjoys just like me, but who doesn't enjoy just like me. Yet another good lesson to learn from Kierkegaard. I'm going to call this a desire for a kind of differential equality. We are both barred subjects. We both desire to enjoy. But that doesn't mean that our enjoyments are the same. If we were to just keep going here, in other words, what if we were to just keep adding elements? Where would be our new one position? It would be right out here in the position of desire. We always start where we leave off. Self-consciousness gives way to autoeroticism, would give way to something that I would call intersubjective love. Love as sharing with each other what neither of us has. Not desire for another, but the cause of desire itself. Here we would see a superimposition of lacks, yours with that of another barred subject, instead of a barred other. Now, at this point, the diagram starts to spin out. I'm not even sure if this last bit holds water. But we're following the trail that is established by Lacan's claim that the internal aid at the end of Seminar 11 becomes that of knowledge and truth in Seminar 16, and the same movement through it prevails, as well as Lacan's claim that this is a circuit that must be run multiple times. And that's what we've been doing in the first, second, and third pass through this internal eight. An internal eight that is every bit 
at the end of analysis. And every bit part and parcel of what delivers to the analyzand a truth, not a knowledge, but a truth from which they cannot be cured. And the question here is, what exactly is this incurable truth at the end of analysis? Well, I would suggest that much as Seminar 11 ends precisely on the topic of love, and not just any love, not narcissistic love and certainly not anaclytic love, but limitless love, love beyond the law, that is precisely what we would have here. The incurable truth at the end of analysis is our ability to experience love beyond the limits of the law. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>